This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. When the Allies invaded France in June of 1944, there were many soldiers from many nations riding across the rough English Channel that stormy dawn. But perhaps none were so well prepared for the awful battle ahead as those of the American Army's Rangers. They were America's first Special Forces group, the best of the best. Many would be the first to hurl themselves in harm's way. Leonard Lamell was chosen from thousands of applicants for the elite job of training the first Ranger group. Well, I was in the 76th uh, Infantry Division, that was called the Liberty Division, in the Headquarters Company 417th Infantry Regiment. And uh, I was chosen, uh, another young man who was a professional boxer and I, uh, were chosen to attend the first ranger school uh, set up in America uh, in World War II to train young men who um, they thought would make excellent ranger instructors because of their athletic background or whatever. And off to that school we went uh, and there was about 200 of us from that division which is 15,000 men um, hopefully the graduates would be instructors throughout the division to teach uh, ranger tactics and all that rangers have to know, their expertise. Uh, we did not know each other by name or rank. We wore coveralls and we had to participate in the roughest and toughest kind of training and combat, hand-to-hand -hand combat and jujitsu as it was called and karate as it's called now and uh, other things. Uh, of that uh, hundred or a couple hundred, uh, less than half graduated. And I was one of the half that graduated and was offered a job uh, as first sergeant of D Company of the 2nd Ranger Battalion. And quite frankly, um, I was uh, also being considered at the time for first sergeant of the headquarters company because at that point in time, the first sergeants were older men of the regular army held reserve commissions and they were called up to become the captains that they were in the reserves and they needed just younger guys to fill in. So I went for the first ones that would give me the first sergeant stripes because I had elderly parents to support. If you survived and graduated, you were in and you became the instructor. Now, if you're talking about how do we sift them out in the Ranger battalions in the actual field at where we went to uh, uh, Camp Forest in Tullahoma, Tennessee, that's where the 2nd Ranger Battalion was activated, organized. And that was as of April 1, 1943. Now, we went through th about 2,000 men, sifted, supposedly volunteers all, as the cream of the crop from all over the nation. And how did we sit them? Well, if they survived and they were bright enough, uh, we'd check them out psychologically and their mentality, their IQs, and everything else. Um, and they could uh, withstand our, uh, what I call, brutal training and tests constantly uh, and survive it all. We would seriously consider them uh, for acceptance into our uh, battalion. We. 
uh, from those 2,000 men that were already volunteers, supposedly the cream of the crop, we took only 500. The rest were rejected. Whatever the best tests were, say, for West Point or uh, Annapolis or the academies, uh, we had to take the same tests. That's uh, mentally. Uh, in the field, we had to do everything that uh, we were told to do, and uh, some of those things seemed to be impossible. Uh, uh, but uh, there are men who will do them, and there are men who won't do them. And the ones that won't, uh, they're gone the next day. We had to climb cliffs as high as two or three hundred feet straight up, no safety rope. The mere thought of that to some men, they didn't want to go any further. They were ready, they were ready to leave right away. But many of us did it many, many times. And those who, uh, if you refuse in the Rangers to do what the rest of us do, you don't get a second chance. Much of our training was with live uh, fire. Uh, to learn all about weapons and explosives and uh, bring realism to our exercises, uh, our problems that we would be confronted with in combat. So live fire was, uh, wasn't exciting to us very long. If you're thinking of the live fire coming at us on an obstacle course, there was a level uh, uh, if we were crawling under fences or um, under barbed wire or through barbed wire or somebody was throwing their bodies on the barbed wire, there was a level uh, below which the live fire was not hitting us. We knew it was going over our heads. That meant we had to keep our heads down and be prepared now. That's true, but um, I don't recall anyone ever being hit by live fire. Certainly I knew the Rangers would be much more risky than the line troops uh, of regular infantry. Uh, the infantry are trained for ground warfare and they're well trained to do the job that they are called upon to do. We are a little bit different. We're called, we could, uh, uh, we land by sea, land, or air, or however. We volunteer for anything and everything. Uh, so we've all participated in all these uh, methods of warfare. Um, I was apprehensive of the dangers, uh, any sensible man would be, um, but a sensible man is a thinking man, and uh, I, uh, I always prided myself in thinking our guys had the most common sense, uh, and that's what was a lifesaver in the long run. Uh, more common sense than the average man has, and good judgment. Uh, they don't commit suicide. They call us suicide uh, squads, suicide platoons. I never felt that way about us. We were cool, calm, collected, and very thoughtful. We figured a way to accomplish the objective without being idiots or doing the foolish things that get yourself killed. But to accomplish these heroic tasks would require the highest quality leadership. Many were tried, but only one was up to the job. We had tried back in April of 1943 to find a commanding officer. Uh, and unfortunately, several were chosen. I'm not going to mention names. None of them uh, could handle it for one reason or another. But along came a Major James Earl Rudder, 
uh, he was quite a guy. He was about 10 years older than the rest of us. Uh, a big man, uh, an athlete, a teacher, uh, many things in civilian life and in the uh, reserves. Um, he rose to lieutenant colonel when he took us over in the summer of 1943. And uh, he was our big brother. Uh, we suddenly really took form and measured up to high expectations. And it was him that was able to pull us together with his leadership. He just knew how to handle men. And um, he was inspiring. You would do anything for your big brother if you had a big brother like this guy was. Um, he was fair-minded, he was intelligent, he was reasonable and as good as at anything. I, I, he mar I marveled at him because um, he wasn't thin like the rest of us. We were raw bone muscle, not an ounce of, of fat on us. Now that they had a capable leader, they needed a mission, one that would test their awesome capabilities. If you had as much cliff climbing training as the Rangers of my battalion, the 2nd Ranger Battalion had, um, you knew that someday in the future cliffs were going to be there. So uh, we didn't know how or why uh, we were supposed to be experts at this and experts at that, uh, but we knew it may have something to do with uh, uh, objectives in the future that we would be called upon to uh, accomplish. But we never learned the true facts of where we were going to land on D-Day till a month or two before D-Day. And then our training only uh, consisted of studying aerial photographs that the Air Force brought back showing uh, this point, and we didn't even know the name of the point, it wasn't told to us at the time, we just had photographs, and we could see these uh, big abutments, uh, concrete emplacements, where these big 155 millimeter uh, coastal guns, uh, their barrels sticking out. Um, it's a fortress, underground tunnels and tracks and uh, bringing in the ammunition, troop quarters and observation uh, on the point, uh, by the way, that still stands. They didn't penetrate that or blow it off the point of uh, Point de Hoc. But in that training phase for a few months before D-Day, we didn't know where these pictures were taken of, what the name of the place was, but we could see we had a 100-foot cliff to climb, a very narrow beach there, uh, and what we were assigned to do, told the mission would be um, in three parts, namely get the guns out of action as quickly as possible, uh, render, render them inoperable, and then cut off the coast road between Utah Beach and, and Omaha Beach by establishing roadblocks. And the third part of our mission was to cut, uh, cut all communications between Utah Beach and Omaha Beach. And, and that's what we did as quickly as we could. And it was explained to us that um, it was one of the most important missions of D-Day. With the rigorous training complete and the Rangers ready, it was time to go. They headed across the dark and rough English Channel on a fateful day known as D-Day. 
we were not on American ships and we did not land with an American LCA. We were aboard uh, English uh, Channel steamers, passenger ships, uh, as a transport uh, that had in place of its lifeboats on it these small landing craft, British landing craft, manned by the British Navy, uh, on which uh, about 25 fellas, rangers, would be on each of these small landing crafts. Uh, we had three to a company. Uh, and uh, it was a horrible day weather-wise. Uh, uh, it had been a terrible storm a day or so before. And a couple days later was an awful storm. But it was horrendous. The swells were high, it was rough, it was cold, it was rainy, um, and we circled about. And it's a couple hour run from the transport area to the landing area. So that's two hours. In our case, we went toward the point, and suddenly we realized that Coxon, the British Coxon, was headed for the wrong cliff, not Point to Hawk. That meant that they had to then turn right, as Colonel. Rudder caused, brought to his attention, his error, turn right and parallel the cliffs about 300 yards and go for three miles, which was running a gauntlet of fire because you got Germans all along the top of those cliffs firing at you for three miles. And then you do a, a quick left turn to salt the small, narrow beach below these 100 foot cliffs, and you got the Germans up there uh, leveled in on you, firing away at you as you're coming ashore. So we had a, a lot of fire coming at us for three miles, however long that takes, plus the run in. Uh, a couple of men got injured, uh, boats got hit regularly. Fortunately, none of the mortars fell in our boats, but they were dropping mortars all around the stoop. And in the stormy weather, we were soaking wet. The boats were taking waves over the bow. We were up to our knees in water, bailing with the, the, sump, the bilge pumps could not uh, get the water out of the boat. So we had to bail with our helmets. It was uh, uncomfortable, it was cold. Some men were seasick, and uh, I suppose apprehensive they'll be hit by shrapnel or rifle fire. And then when we did land, and the ramps went down, uh, of course it was our uh, duty to, uh, to just run forward and grab a rope and get up that cliff and kill as many Germans as we could. So we got organized to go forth and destroy the big guns and, uh, and uh, neutralize the whole area. But just getting out of the assault craft would prove to be almost fatal. I was the first one wounded. I was, I didn't realize I was wounded at the time. I got this burning sensation through my right side, spun me around. And as I went out the ramp, I went out of sight over my head in water because of a shell crater there that I didn't see, didn't really think about. And the guys pulled me out and we did whatever we had to do and on these unexpected things and got to the rope as quickly as possible. And some of us got up about, out of 225 of us that assaulted the cliffs, 180 of us got to the top. Uh, we, what caused this uh, series of mistakes when that coxswain made that mistake going to the wrong point, it cost us 30 precious minutes on our landing at Point de Hoc, which enabled the Germans to come out of their underground hideaways, crew quarters and machine gun uh, bunkers uh, to be waiting for us. See, if we were able to 
land and assault uh, with precision as the, all of the other uh, fire support were to be lifted at 6.30 and we hit at 6.30, we would have taken them by surprise. They wouldn't have been out. We'd have been up before they got out, but it was the reverse of that. They were waiting for us. They were just standing there, just shooting us off the posts as we come in, shooting us off the beach or on the, on the flanks in the side of the, see it was a, the point came out and then there was a couple little coves and on the side of each cove was a, a machine gun emplacements uh, concreted, uh, cemented into the face of the cliff with uh, supporting steelwork and all that. And they had a field day just picking us off. Um, sometimes away from the edge of the cliff, maybe the grapnel hook would be maybe 20, 30, 40 feet inland. Well, uh, those guys would cut those cables or ropes that far and we could not see them from the bottom of the beach looking up. They didn't, we didn't get a shot at them. But some of our guys would, uh, at the water's edge with uh, special snipers, uh, special uh, expert marksmen, would be there to pick off those Germans that they could. Um, how many of each uh, died and were wounded, I don't know. All I know is we were successful. Out of the 225 that landed that morning, 180 of us got up. Lucky. I'll say. Fortunately for us, we could run in and out of uh, uh, shell craters and the like to make our way to check different positions and move out from there. Something, some wonderful benefit uh, that the boys at Omaha Beach didn't have because no shell craters or bomb craters were found on Omaha Beach. They had nothing to hide in, uh, but we did. The place was decimated. You could look across that point and it uh, looked like the face of the moon with all the thousands of holes and uh, craters and the like. Uh, the emplacements, concrete, uh, several feet thick with uh, re uh, steel rods in it. It was blown the kingdom come. But there were no guns. And what made you think there might still be some was their telephone poles or timbers or whatever they had sticking out in, uh, of some of the emplacements. But you could see the guns had never been there. You know, when you've gotten to your position where you're about to uh, uh, think about destroying them and it's not there, it's disappointing, but uh, heck, uh, we're prepared for that. And uh, in combat, we were trained, uh, you'll come face to face with many disappointments, but you've got to have the good common sense and brains to figure things out quick and move accordingly uh, and accomplish the objective. You look across that landscape, uh, 40 acres, flat, nothing but shell craters and blown to kingdom come. Um, it had to be inland, uh, so we looked inland, we saw trees and uh, what looked like a rural setting and uh, there was only one uh, road out at a point, there were minefields on each side and uh, I figured uh, there's men there, uh, they come and go, so they must come and go that road too. Uh, so they had a machine gun covering it and they had another emplacement covering a, a billet nearby where they slept above ground. Uh, so we had to take them out. We neutralized that uh, machine gun nest, uh, uh, killed them and sent them running for cover. And we got through that uh, thinking, well, we'll get out to that road, get to the coast road that run between U Utah Beach and Omaha Beach. And we'll look if we see anything. And uh, we turn right because we were assigned to the, uh, to the west flank of the uh, invasion area. We came upon this sunken road 
uh, between two hedgerows. Now, that's another thing. We didn't know much about hedgerows. It just seemed, uh, really, it was a frightening sight. We didn't, you know, an American boy looks at a hedgerow uh, just um, maybe three feet high or very very seldom are they much more. These were like 15 feet high with trees growing out, three or f like 30, 40 feet in the air. You could have hit a column of uh, tanks in this uh, hedgerow and never have seen them from this coast road. So we saw where that, uh, going from the blacktop into that sunken farm road between pastures, some, uh, something heavy or something had cut up the dirt. Well, farm wagons have a steel rim on them, and that could have been it. We didn't know what could, but quite frankly, we're not about to cut across the middle of a field or a pasture and silhouette ourselves. Uh, we, uh, uh, we sent our men out of the platoon. That We had 22 men when we started from the cliff. By the time we got to the, uh, to the coast road, there was only 12 of us left. The rest of them had become casualties, uh, killed or wounded badly. Uh, so the 12 I had left, 10 of them, the two staff sergeants took their men and set up the roadblock out there on the road, on the uh, blacktop road. They had descended into the meat grinder known as the hedgerows. These ancient earthen berms were to prove a killing ground for the first allies, then the Germans who occupied them. The rangers developed a unique patrolling tactic for the terrain. We have a pattern of patrolling called leapfrogging. Uh, I stand here with, uh, or hide or make myself invisible, try to stop breathing so no German can hear us, that kind of thing. And uh, Jack will uh, run up 10, 15, 20 yards, uh, hopefully, hoping he can get to that spot where he wants to be to make his observation. I cover him while he does so. Then I go by him another 30 yards. He covers me and we're leapfrogging protecting one another going inland. Uh, we had gone inland about 100 yards and it just so happened on my leap around him to the hedgerow, I looked over and there before me was a swale, an indentation. Of course, uh, back from the edge of the cliff, the land starts to fall in the rear down to the lowlands. Well, I, came, I looked over and I looked down and, and it was a a uh, swale, uh, an apple orchard, and there were the guns all set up, uh, textbook ready to be fired, uh, but no men that we could see. So we looked around, and uh, we couldn't see every part of that orchard, uh, but as for what we could see, we couldn't see any men there, but we saw about 75 to uh, 80 men, I guess it was, 100 yards away. Uh, there's a sunken road behind this orchard, that uh, kind of paralyzed the blacktop road. And there was another farm road up westward of us. We had just been past, uh, Jack and I, when we were leapfrogging, trying to get to uh, where, uh, you know, find these guns, uh, uh, a German combat patrol of about 50 men, heavily armed, uh, was coming and went by us within 20 feet of us, and we were hidden in a ditch. Uh, but we did not fire for the reason that our orders were stop anybody coming from Utah Beach toward Omaha Beach, so to stop any help to get to Omaha where the divisions were going. These men <coughs> were coming the opposite direction. They were going toward Utah Beach, so we didn't feel that we should give up our position or signal with any men there, because I don't think they even thought there was a German that far inland. We're about a mile inland. Uh, so anyway, 
we saw these men, and the, that patrol, by the way, was going west on a blacktop road in a field behind a, a wall. Uh, we noticed that they came out and crossed over uh, half a mile west of us and went in a parallel to the road that Jack Kuhn and I were going in, where we found the guns. They came upon those men that we saw over there, the Germans. It appeared to us that uh, some German officer, uh, non-com, was standing by his vehicle talking to these men. I don't know what he was talking about. We couldn't hear him, whether he was bringing them up to date, but I don't think he knew we were, uh, there was an American soldier near there. Uh, uh, he was probably telling him what to update him on the, how the invasion is going. It was about 8 o'clock in the morning. So uh, I said, Jack, hop up there and cover me. I'm going in and do the best I can. With it. He had a thermite grenade. Now, we were given thermite grenades. They're about the size of a little longer beach, uh, beer can. But the composition that's in there, the incendiary compounds or whatever they are, when, when air hits it, they be, it, it becomes molten metal and it runs out like pour, you could pour it out. Anything in, among the gears or in the hinges where this molten metal can flow, liquid as it became, molten metal as it became, it would seep down into those crevices of the gears and everything, and as air hit it, it cooled off and it just locked everything and made it inoperable. I've read so many books about how we were supposed to have thrown grenades down the boat. We couldn't even reach the top of the barrel, they were so high. I'd have had to gone out in the middle uh, and, and make myself exposed to everybody and get on Jack's shoulders to, to throw things down. We didn't do anything like that. But anyway, so, and then I took my, uh, I had a submachine gun and, and Jack did too. He was up on the, on the top of the hedgerow keeping his eyes glued on those Germans. So I, I said, see, if they even look this way, I want you to drill the first one you can because i got to be warned so we can get out of there. So anyway, it did the two guns, put them out of action, rendered them inoperable, took my uh, field jacket off, wrapped it around the butt of my submachine gun, and smashed as best I could the gun sights of all five guns and came back to Jack and said, hey, we got to go back to the guys at the road and get some more, because um, uh, I got uh, three guns that I can't do any more with it. So we ran back, so uh, 100 yards, 150 yards, whatever it was. Um, you know, we were in pretty good shape in those days. Uh, how long does it take it to run back? And, and each guy gives me, a, we just stuff them in our jacket and shirts and everything and run back. I don't think it took us 10 minutes to run 100 yards and back to what well, they do the mile and uh, you know, what's, I forget the 100 yard dash, but we were pretty fast. So we got back and went back the same course down that sunken road. There was no Germans. We didn't count anything to where we had spotted them. We looked up over the hedgerow and they were still there talking. They hadn't heard us. And actually, when you think of it, there was nothing for them to do for the reason that they couldn't get fire orders from their point, their observation point, because E Company is killing them out there on the point, they're observers. We were at the right place at the right time, and there was a lull in the battle because they couldn't get firing orders back from whatever source, and they weren't going to be sitting ducks 
uh, for fire because you see the 88s behind them inland had been firing on the rangers on the cliffs and crawling fire and the and uh, texas our backup and the destroyers were looking trying to get back at those 88s uh, well anyway uh, we come back and we use the, the thermite grenades to finish off the guns and as i'm coming out of the swale the apple orchard uh, having destroyed and rendered inoperable the five guns uh, Jack says, come on, man, let's get out of here. He, we were both nervous at that point. I crawl up the bankment, embankment of that hedgerow, it's nine feet where I was crawling. A big explosion occurs. We couldn't hear with each other, and so we just ran like a couple scared rabbits as fast as we could uh, back to the blacktop road where our 10 men were in a roadblock position and, uh, and our ears cleared up. And then we started to rationalize, what the hell happened? Uh, I concluded that uh, uh, maybe uh, the Texas or the destroyers trying to get those 88s that were shelling the dickens out of us earlier may have had a short round, as so often happens. The guns they destroyed were more menacing even than they appeared, for their large caliber shells could have zeroed in on successive waves of men breaching the German wall surrounding Europe. expecting to see them pointed at Utah Beach because we didn't know much about Utah Beach and the 4th Division and the guys up that way. In combat you only know what's going on a hundred, couple hundred yards around you. You may know something of the big picture and you may know all of your battalion's mission uh, but that surprised us. But we didn't know the capability of these guns. They had a firing range of 10 to 12 miles. They could hit the, uh, the armada of ships that were I could 12, 13 miles off the coast. Uh, they could uh, reach all the beaches, the Allied beaches, uh, and certainly the American beaches and Utah beaches, and they had a 360 degree, uh, and they were mobile, you know, they were on wheels, they could move them anywhere. Um, but uh, they were pointed in that direction. Uh, they would have uh, destroyed many of the vessels, many of the ships, many of the transports. Uh, or if they hit the uh, LCAs, the big LCAs. You know, I was speaking of our LCA, 25 guys, but you've got big American LCAs, landing craft assault, that have hundreds of guys on them. And then they have tanks on them, and uh, they're all susceptible for that fire, and it uh, would have been blown right out of the water. But worst of all, they could have tore up all the beaches with the men swarming over them, and, because, you know, uh, uh, Omaha Beach was, not, was bloody, bloody Omaha. Uh, they uh, stopped uh, the landings, it was so bloody. And had these guns been able to add to that, they would have just blown that beach to kingdom come. Lomel's gallantry netted him a field promotion, but his next encounter with the Germans would be a bit unorthodox. Then, after D-Day, I became the sergeant major of the highest enlisted, uh, highest enlisted man rate for the battalion at headquarters, combat sergeant major. And I went with uh, uh, Major uh, Slater, Duke Slater, he used to be my company commander, he became executive officer. Uh, and he and I and uh, some others <coughs> went down to meet uh, with, uh, uh, I think the 29th division uh, because we could the 29th Division guys of having 
several divisions, a couple in the hospital, a couple in the graveyard, one in the field and one in training, that sort of uh, humor, you know. And as I recall, I, I could see that from the hilltop we were on with our headquarters, a battalion headquarters, uh, he was coming up uh, a road and I could see another patrol coming and I, I thought the patrol I saw was my own old company, D, sending a patrol up. And it looked to me like uh, Lieutenant Edlin and his patrol wanted to get to the fort faster than a D Company patrol, the old competition thing again. And he and his patrol got there and they sh shouldered their arms as if it was a Sunday afternoon and they walked right in the gates of these Germans with machine guns and everything as if nothing's going wrong. And, Essentially, as brief as I can be, say, take me to your leader, and they did. One thing led to another, and uh, uh, Bob Edlin, Bob and his, uh, one of his guys spoke German, were taken to the commanding officer of that uh, uh, fortress, and uh, uh, they explained uh, through his interpreter that they had it surrounded with 50,000 rangers. There's only 500 of us in the battalion, and mostly were shot up and only at half strength. Um, but the colonel wouldn't, the colonel of the, uh, the German colonel wouldn't surrender to him as a lowly lieutenant, only to Colonel Rudder. So uh, word came back to us that uh, Colonel Rudder would have to come down to take the surrender. So Colonel asked me to go get some vehicles, any kind of vehicles. And we didn't have many vehicles, you know, the Rangers don't have their own vehicles as such. So I went to nearby office and borrowed command cars and tried to make a contingency look like a real important group of officers coming. And it was only Colonel Rudder and a few of his officers in one command car, another command car filled with what looked to be uh, dignitaries or officers or high-ranking people, but they weren't. And then I brought up uh, a few six-by-sixes, big transport trucks for prisoners. Well, make a long story short, they did affect the uh, surrender, and the, uh, most effectively because it uh, got a little rough in there. He grabbed that colonel by the uh, belt buckle and shoved a grenade in his tummy and uh, told him he was either going to do it or get blown to bits at that moment. With the Germans' doubts overruled, the surrender proceeded as planned, one of the gutsiest actions of World War II. When we come in with our pretended convoy of important people and my trucks, uh, I noticed that that patrol had those German prisoners all organized. They had all their weapons on one side of the road and all the prisoners on the other side of the road sitting there with their hands on their heads waiting for us. And there was only four guys that did all of that because they thought they were surrounded by 50,000 Rangers. We didn't have that many in the war. As a matter of fact, we only had 3,000 Rangers in World War II. Uh, uh, six battalions, 500 each, plus replacements. Sidney Solomon was destined to live through the invasion and the rest of the war. He was working for a Wisconsin newspaper when he heard the call to arms and enlisted in March of 1942. After a rushed stint in officer's candidate school, he became a second lieutenant in the Army Rangers. By June of 1944, it was his turn to lead the charge to freedom. In a darkened transport wallowing in the choppy English Channel, his men were awakened from their fitful slumbers at 3 a.m. 
it was time to prepare for the greatest assault of all time. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. We went in with the British Navy. We had trained with the American Navy, but we went in with the British Navy. The transport in which I was, C Company was on, and A and B Company was called the HMS Prince Charles. And we were on there. Now we went in, our H hour was at 6.30 in the morning. So we were awakened at, uh, oh, about uh, between 3 and 3.30 a.m. in the morning. and. Uh, those who wanted to eat could eat. Not very many of them were in the mood to eat, to eat a breakfast, though. Only the so-called chow hounds ate breakfast, and they, uh, they regretted it later on. But uh, at, at between 4 and 4.30, we were alerted to go up on the boat deck because the landing craft were hanging in the davits of the Prince Charles. And remember, the invasion was to be on the 5th of June, but because of the stormy weather, and the rough seas, it was postponed for 24 hours. Well, on June 6th, the rain had stopped, but the seas were still pretty choppy. And we got up on the boat deck, and by 4.30, we were climbing over the, uh, there was a plank on the, uh, that the British seamen had put up on the, uh, on the railing on the boat deck over to the landing craft. And the landing craft was swinging with the motion of the boat. <laughs> so. The, uh, the British seamen were there, and we had a, they helped us up on the, uh, uh, to get up on the plank, and then we walked over. Now, it's, pitch, it's dark, perfectly dark, and they kept saying, they would help us up there, and, and we'd walk a plank. I felt just like a pirate days. And they said, do not look down. Well, I looked down. I wanted to see why I shouldn't look down. And that was a great sight there, because way down there in the dark, you could see the phosphorescent of the, uh, uh, of the ocean as it lapped against the, uh, the hull of the Prince Charles. But then we got into the landing craft, and now only two of us were, two were going because my platoon had one landing craft, and the first platoon had the other landing craft, and we went down together, and then we, were going, we circled around till we were both side by side, and then we went in. Now on my landing craft, I had 37 men. Tide was at low tide, just starting to come in. So as we approached the, uh, oh, we're probably 10 or 12 miles out in a channel. And that took a good hour, maybe a little over an hour, to get in. And uh, so by the time we reached the shore, before we reached the shore, the dawn broke. And uh, 
when the dawn broke, and then as we got closer, and then we saw that we were headed right to where we wanted to go, why that everything was fine. But then I could, as we got closer, I could see the uh, concentric circles in the uh, water around us, and that was artillery and mortar shells landing. Fortunately, none of them hit us, but they were landing all around us, and you could see the circles uh, uh, because I was standing up there. Then, as we got a little closer, you could hear you could f hear the uh, the ping of the uh, of the German uh, machine gun, uh, small arms fire, hitting the steel hulled landing craft. Some of the men may have been scared. I was not scared, because I figured I was well trained, and I didn't know I didn't know what to be afraid of. So it, uh, I'd never been in combat. I thought those guys—it's just like going into a football game. You're you're trained, and you know if you're not trained, if you didn't pay attention, if you don't, if it is, if your coach didn't train you, why? And then you would have uh, uh, butterflies because the, you don't know what the other guy is going to do. And you don't read the uh, papers. And all we heard was that the Germans were supermen. Well, so were we. We had, we had good training. And uh, now I stood, now this is a, I'm going to put a, a little bit of humor in this. In our, in our, in our dry run, in getting into the landing craft on shore. We had never got into the landing craft with full ammunition and, the, uh, and a full supply of ammunition, nor the ration, the food rations that we were going to carry because our kitchens and supply train trucks weren't going to come in until five days after the invasion. Never did we carry all that, what we should have. So we get into the landing craft. Now everybody's got five days supply of ammunition, five days supply of K rations and what we call D bars, which are little, looks like a Hershey bar, an inch square, three of them to a, uh, uh, that was a day's ration. And one inch, a one inch square was a meal. And of course, psychologically, when you ate that, you couldn't finish that one square, and you knew it was just psychologically, it was so loaded with calories or whatever. So now we get into that landing craft, and everybody's so bulked up with the landing, there wasn't room for me to sit down. So, and I'm the first one going off the, uh, as the uh, lieutenant, I'm the first one that was going to jump off the, uh, uh, the ramp. So I stood up next to the sub-lieutenant, the English sub-lieutenant, sub who was in charge of the two uh, landing craft, and I stood next to him. He had a stand, too. So we're going in, and I, I'm just standing there taking in the scenery. I'm standing up, and when, he when the uh, small arms fire start pinging on the steel hold landing craft, every once in a while I'd squat down a little behind the, uh, the steel door, because I'm standing right in front of a uh, of a steel door that the sub-lieutenant is going to, he's, he's going to swing that open. And then the ramp is going to go down and I'm going to jump to the right. And then we had it all, this is how we all planned, uh, planned it in, in our dry runs. And the second man would go off to the left and ultimately right and left. In addition, the tide is just starting to come in. So every time a man jumps off, the boat is that much lighter the tide is coming in, and we're going in. 
So now the uh, sub-lieutenant calls out, go. And he, I push open the door. He lets go of the rope with the ramp that goes down. I jump off to the right. Sergeant Reed, who is the next man, he jumps off to the left. Now I land in water, oh, about up to my uh, waist. And uh, I'm loaded down with ammunition. And I'm carrying a six to, one six millimeter mortar shell to have one more shell for my mortar section and holding my Tommy gun over my, up high so it doesn't get wet. And in addition, now, it, this doesn't take as long as it takes me to, uh, to explain it. I'm trying to get my feet on flat on the bottom. And just, and Sergeant Reed, the second man off to the left, he got hit just as he jumped off. So I got, got my feet squared away and Sergeant Reed is underneath the, uh, underneath the ramp. So I reached over and grabbed him by the uh, collar and yanked him out from underneath the landing craft. Otherwise, he would have been submarine. And I started up uh, sloshing through the, uh, uh, through the surf and up on dry, up on the sand there. And I figured about, uh, oh, I, I guess maybe about 15 yards. And I said, I, I dropped him and I said, Sergeant, uh, the aid man will come and get you. I've got to get on my way. So I started running. And uh, I hadn't run more than, uh, oh, maybe 10 yards. And a mortar shell landed, a German mortar shell landed right behind me and killed or wounded my entire mortar section. And it knocked me, I just got shrapnel in my back. It knocked me flat on, face down on the sand. And uh, oh, I just dropped the uh, mortar shell down there. And uh, I thought, man, I must be dead. But then, in the next instant, why, well, sand started kicking up in my face. And, I, and then, then I realized I'm not dead, and I thought, hey, some machine gunner's got his bead on me, and he's getting the, uh, the range, and I better get the heck up and run. Well, that's what I did. I picked up and ran, and ran into the uh, base of the cliff. And I was about 100 yards, oh, I'd say almost 100 yards wide of, of, uh, of sand that we had across. I started reaching in my field jacket, I forgot about that, for the maps. And my platoon sergeant came running up, and I said, uh, Sergeant Kennedy, and I'm reaching in. Then I realized that I'm alive. So uh, I didn't, didn't get the maps out to give it to him. And uh, that's when I got up and I ran as fast as I could to the uh, base of the cliff. The aid man came running over to me, and I started to take my jacket off and my shirt off, and he picked out some shrapnel out of my back, and uh, he, this was before the days of penicillin. So he took out a packet of, uh, of uh, sulfur powder and sprinkled that on the, uh, uh, where the shrapnel was and put a patch on it and said, that's all I can do for now, Lieutenant. Put my shirt back on, my jacket, and I said, let's start up. That, that's where all of our casualties happen. Now, I've got all the figures. These are the official figures. This is where I say the Point de Hoc area was the glamorous one. Ours with A and B had the most uh, hazardous one. And it was hazardous because we had to run across 100 yards of beach before we started to climb up the uh, cliff. 21 men were killed. 20 of them were killed crossing that beach in the first 10 or 15 minutes. Only one man was killed up on top of the cliff. That was the other lieutenant, Bill Moody. And he was killed right next to me 
when we're lying in a shell hole. So 20 men were killed in the first 10, 15 minutes crossing that beach. Now these are from the official uh, battalion uh, uh, medical report. 21 men killed on June 6th from C Company. The next was D, was, uh, D Company that came in, Lamel's company at Point to Hawk. They had 14 men. Now let's go back and E Company up at Point to Hawk, they had nine men killed. F Company at Point to Hawk had six men killed. Now our A and B companies had 13 and 12 men killed on the beach, crossing that beach. They had the same similar beach to cross as we did, 100 yards, and that's where, the, that's where ours was the most hazardous. And headquarters company had six men killed. Now those six men are killed because they're aid men and radio men and actually assigned to each one of the, uh, uh, each one of the line companies as radio men and aid men. But uh, a total of 81 men killed, but uh, 52 men from uh, A, B, and C, and 29 men from D, E, and F. We had twice as many killed. We didn't have any beach obstacles where we were because if we're, as the German soldiers, they figured, what dumb soldiers would make a landing here at a cliff where they had to climb a cliff? Well, we were the dumb soldiers, we were the smart ones. But the beach obstacles, which were to prevent the uh, uh, tanks to come in and land, and supposedly to get landing craft, the 116th, the uh, 116th Regiment of the 29th, they hid behind these. You've seen pictures of those of combat time. The, uh, and that's where the men got killed. We told our guys, run across the beach, run. You know, a, a, a man running is not a good, uh, a good target for somebody with a rifle. But a stationary target is, is absolutely perfect. Now, they had two bazooka men, two uh, in each, one in each assault section. And my radio man was killed, so we didn't have any radio, we didn't have any communication. The radio was in the English Channel. The, uh, and uh, the BAR men, they lost their BARs in the, uh, in the drink. When we got up on top, the only thing I did was get all my men together now, we had nine men up there. Out of the 37 men in my landing craft, I counted nine of us up on top. Only two of those nine had not been wounded. Now, the other seven, of course, and counting me, were lightly wounded, still able to climb up there. The seriously wounded were still down below. So, uh, but with nine men, I figured there's no point in continuing our mission. We're not an effective fighting force. So I'm laying in a shell hole there. And just, uh, uh, just about 10 yards from the top of the uh, cliff. And uh, that's when Bill Moody came, the other platoon leader came running over and jumped off to my right. And I said, Bill, I, I just spotted a trench up ahead. And I said, he, so I pulled back down and he reached up and peered out over the, uh, over the edge of the shell hole and that's, and then all of a sudden he fell on my, uh, my right side and I looked at him and he'd been killed, instantly killed. He peered over the, when I said there's a, uh, there's a, a, a trench up ahead of us and uh, he, he looked up to see where it was because I pointed out to him where it was. And as he reached up on his haunches a little to look over the edge of the shell hole, 
that's when I, I didn't stay up there because I had already seen it. And uh, so I reached down again, and just then why he fell over on, uh, on my right side, and I looked there and uh, I was wondering why he did that. Then I saw that he was, uh, he had been killed instantly and he'd been drilled right through the, uh, right to the forehead with a uh, sniper fire. And so I turned around and grabbed two men and I said, follow me, and we ran across to that trench and we just started to go through that, uh, clear out the trench. And I came to a, uh, a dugout. I could see a dugout ahead. And before I got to that, I was carrying uh, two uh, grenades on my uh, suspenders and my cartridge belt. So I took that and I threw that ahead, put a curve on it and, and waited because it went in off in there. And then uh, we waited a, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe a minute or so. And then we ran ahead and sprayed the inside of it. That was that. Then we went on ahead and then I found, we, we found, we took our, now we didn't go running ahead. We went cautiously, the three of us. And so I was leading the way, and then I came across the, uh, the mortar position, which they said was up there. And that was, and there it was like a great big manhole. And uh, there wasn't, any, it wasn't man though. They were probably all in that uh, so-called fortified house. So I, uh, we went into the, uh, uh, into the hole there where the mortar was. And it was, of course, it was like, say it was like a, a manhole, and it was cement lined. So, and on the wall were the targets up at point to, up at the beach, where the uh, main invasion force was coming in, with all the elevations and the uh, uh, the setting for, because uh, they had flags up on the beach there, and everyone had it was just like a uh, flag to a on a golf course, and uh, and with that number. On the painted on the uh, on the side of the the walls of the uh, uh, the mortar hole was the uh, elevation there. So we just took the uh, uh, butts of our rifle and uh, knocked out the uh, all the mechanism that uh, sets the back, and then went on. And we decided. Well, then another trench came off to our right, and I debated. So we went on a little ahead. But I figured, well, I don't know where that one to the right goes, because to the left is the main invasion beach. And uh, I went around, there was a curve ahead, and went cautiously, and I thought, I better not go too far, because I don't know if anybody's going to come from the right and get us from behind. So we went around this curve. It's just as clear today as, as it was 55 years ago. and. Uh, a German came from the opposite direction. Well, he was more startled than I was, and he stopped dead in his tracks. And I, I grabbed him. I thought maybe we ought to take one prisoner to get maybe get some information. So I had uh, Steve grab him, took his weapons away from him, and I said, take him back and put him down the back of the cliff where uh, Ralph Gornson was, and uh, I said, maybe we can get some information. So he took him back and. I don't know whether he gave him a push to get down there or whether he, or what. I, did, I couldn't care less. But I turned around and came back and, and uh, I told uh, Ralph that uh, Bill had been killed. And I said, I think the best bet is for us to hold on to this ground up here. Because we didn't have any communication with anybody else. Our radios were gone in a drink. 
and Ralph was trying to get uh, uh, some of the less serious wounded who were able to make it to go up to where A and B were coming in and try to con make a contact with them so we could meet up with them. So we stayed up there. I stayed up on top for the rest of the day and just made certain that nobody came in. We dug a foxhole. We dug slit trenches up there, and I stayed up there that night. But they didn't counterattack where we were. I'm assuming they knew where the main invasion was coming in, the main force was coming in, and they wouldn't think of anybody was coming in where the uh, uh, where, where Cliff was. So, with, uh, matter of fact, when I woke up, uh, oh, just after dawn, early in the morning, and here, oh, up maybe uh, 500, 700 yards away in the next field, a couple of fields away, I guess. There are two old French women rounding up the cows that hadn't been killed by the, uh, by artillery. Cows had to be uh, milked that morning. So they, they grabbed, they took the cows and rounded them up and took them in there. Now, Ralph sent up word, we're going to meet A and B company. Only one officer was alive. All the others had been killed and wounded, either in A and B. So we were going to meet the remnants of them out on the blacktop road that uh, paralleled the cliff. It was about three quarters of a mile from the cliff. And that's the road we were going to take anyway and get up to Point de Hoc to meet up with D, E, and F there. So we went up and met uh, Captain Arnold of B Company, was the only officer there. All the rest have been uh, killed or seriously wounded. Well, you can't imagine it uh, as a civilian unless you've been in service and unless you've been in a combat unit. I would never have given it a thought, uh, except I knew we were in a combat unit. Now, uh, about eight, nine, ten days after the invasion, that's when I was promoted to captain and took over B Company. And I stayed with B Company to the end of the war. By the end of the war, I'd had 200% turnover in B Company. Now, not all of those were killed, but if they weren't killed, they were so seriously wounded, they weren't, they weren't sent back to the, uh, uh, to the company. And, uh, uh, hey, this is war. This is, not, uh, this is not a game. This is not a football game. Uh, when you get hurt in a football game and you go to the sidelines, some, a substitute comes in and takes your place. But this is, this is war. This is uh, either some, I'm going to kill somebody before he kills me. And it isn't, it isn't a game. And we're mentally prepared for that. All of our training has been psychologically prepared for that. Uh, you got to be very close with some guys. Uh, even though there's, uh, you came close with them over the times in service because I relied on them and by the same token they relied on me uh, to keep them alive. Uh, uh, this June and one of, one of the trips back to, uh, uh, back to Normandy, we're in a, uh, my first trip back was in 1979. At that time I was national president of the Ranger Battalion Association. and. Uh, I went to the military cemetery at that time, and I got the location of a lot of my men, and I went to there, and I saluted them. Now this June, and I go back every five years and do that. Now this June, a reporter from the local newspaper where I lived 
called me up and asked if uh, he could, go, if he got an okay from the paper, could they go along and join the Rangers? And I said, yes. So he came with me and uh, uh, he came with us on our trip and we went into the, uh, into the uh, Normandy, the military cemetery there. I said, before, I, before we go anywhere else, I've, I have my, what I call is my duty, my mission. And I go there and, and had the location of these men's graves. There are 9,900 and some odd graves there. Almost 10,000 graves there. But I go and I salute them. It took courage, cunning, and more than a dash of luck to survive the war and live to talk about it. But Leonard Lamel, Sidney Salomon, and many other brothers in arms lived on to inspire us with tales of great deeds of heroism and bravery as they recall their days as U.S. Army Rangers of World War II. hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Written by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.